This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I'm joined, as always, by the Tax Museum curator and professor of accounting extraordinaire at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeffrey L. Hoops. Jeffrey, how are you? So good. How are you? I'm doing good. By the way, for those of you who don't know, L stands for LAMRO. In case you're wondering, which I'm sure you all were. And now you all know. Uh, next, I'm going to tell you his social security number and his mother's maiden name, and then you can go take all of his money. He's set to go. Jeff, what are we doing on Tax Chats today? So we have with us Brandon Maddox. Brandon, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. This is uh, Brandon Maddox. Uh, believe it or not, based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Graduated from both uh, Chapel Hill and Duke. So it's good to talk to people that graduated from each of those. And uh, I own and started Silencer Central, which is the largest silencer dealer in the United States. And I have stores in all 42 states where silencers are illegal. Okay, so it might not be universally known what you even mean when you say a silencer. So tell us what uh, Silencer Central in the name of your store is. And Je- then, Jeff and I know, I guess, but I'm guessing a few of our listeners don't know. I guess in the same uh, kind of explanation, why? what on earth that has to do with taxes? Yeah, I always tell my daughters to tell the kids at school that their dad's a pharmacist because that's what I went to school for at Chapel Hill. But uh, silencers, I would say... Most people think of like Hollywood, uh, you know, nefarious activity, but honestly, most of our customers are hunters. So it makes your firearm quiet, doesn't silence it. So the, technically, the, probably the best name is a suppressor, but it's going reduce, to reduce recoil and also the, it mitigates sound. So it's really good for uh, hunting and also people that are, uh, you know, if you're target shooting and you want to disturb the neighbors. So that's the, that's the business that I'm in. Okay, so what does that have to do with taxes? Why would, I mean, we're on tax chats, not silencer chats or gun chats or anything else, or as much as Scott and I might like to change that. But. So in 1934, they created what they call the NFA Act, and the NFA is the National Firearms Act, and there's a $200 tax on every machine gun purchased and suppressor, short barrel rifle, destructive device. Uh, it's sort of a sin tax, if you will. It is underneath the IRS code. The $200 was equivalent to 100% uh, markup on a machine gun. So in 1934, a machine gun average was 200 bucks. It was created sort of around the gangster era to penalize people from buying machine guns legally, which oddly enough, you still can buy. There's a limited number of them because they stopped manufacturing the transferable ones in 86. But somehow silencers got thrown into the same process of the IRS code. So all of our customers have to pay a $200 tax before they can actually get their suppressor. So we did 100,000 silencers last year, so you could do the math. It adds up pretty quick, $200 for each purchase. Wow. So hang on. Is that $2 bucks? What is that? Yeah, it's a lot of money. So last year, the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Farms, they processed 800 applications through the NFA branch. So that's it's called the Form 4. And 800 applications at $200 a pop, $160 million. So that's a, it's a big number. Wow. Wow. $160 million, That's in the whole country. Yeah. Yeah, the whole country. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And, um, okay, so here's a question. 
does this $200 tax um, affect your sales, do you think? It does, but yeah, it does. I mean, I grew up in the South, so people are very against giving the government anything else uh, more than they have to. So that tax. So just to give you an example, if I tell my customers I'm going to run a special, I'm going to give you $200 off, my sales are good. But if I'm telling them I'm going to pay your tax stamp, my sales are even better. And it's the same 200 So there is, there is a mental obstacle for a consumer to have to pay $200 sort of for permission to own a product. So it definitely does negatively impact. But if you think about it from an inflation, ter- you know, looking at sheer inflation, that number has not changed since 1934. So when you tell people, hey, it could be three or $4,000 today, just be happy it's only 200 that sets a little better. So, when, I mean, how, how much does a silencer cost these days? So what's the range of things that we're paying to this $200 tax on? Yeah, good question. Our average sale is a thousand bucks. So, um, you know, it's like a 20% increase. You know, we have some cheaper, we have some more probably in the marketplace, you know, the probably average price is, you know, seven or 800, 900. And I, once you include sales tax, and then the tax stamp is above and beyond that. It's a $200 tax. You know, I tell people to think of it as a transfer tax, just like if you bought a vehicle and you have to go to the courthouse and pay that transactional tax. Very similar because the actual process of buying a suppressor is, in simplest terms, a title transfer. The feds are titling the ownership from my EIN to that customer, and they're charging 200 to process that. So how, what is like the cheapest silence you would sell? So seven, 800, 1,000 as an average. Can you buy a $100? Is there like the... A Walmart generic brand suppressor that I could buy that I would buy were I in this market? No, and it, you know, there's a fair amount of paperwork and there's like a nine month wait to get these just because there's a bottleneck for the paperwork. So most people feel like it's a lifetime purchase. So they're willing to invest, you know, to your question, the cheapest we sell is probably 349. It's like an all aluminum rim fire. It'd be for like your little 22 you shoot in the backyard as a kid. Um, but uh, most people are willing to upgrade that and buy something, maybe titanium, since it's going to be a lifetime purchase that they can, you know, leave to their heirs uh, from a legacy perspective as well. So you talked about when you like that you're going to live for your lifetime. Could you sell the sell the um, silencer once you bought it? It's tough. So there's not much of a resale market because you can only sell it to someone in your state, and then the same paperwork that I do as the dealer to transfer it to you the customer would actually have to do, and that customer would have to pay the $200 tax stamp. So uh, by the time it's used and then that consumer has to figure out how to do all the paperwork between two people and then have to wait nine months, and, you know, it's, it's, it's quite laborious. I mean, we have to, I have to submit fingerprints on every customer. I have to su- submit a two-by-two two photo. This law was created before there was a national database where you could check and see who's a felon and who's not. So we have to submit fingerprints. We have to submit two-by-two photo. We have to submit all this paperwork to do the title transfer. It would be difficult for someone to sell it, you know, amongst each other. You see it done more in the machine gun market where machine guns, um, like I said earlier, they've really appreciated over the years when you can't make any more and there's only about 250000 out there that are still transferable. The average machine gun price is, you know, $30,000, dollars $50,000. Wow. Okay, so I've shot a lot of guns in my life, but I have never shot a gun with a suppressor. I have only seen them in the movies where there's like a guy dressed in all black leather with a black mask, and he walks into a room and he shoots somebody and you barely hear anything and the guy drops dead. It's like, is that how it is in real life? Are they really that much quieter? No, I wish. Um, So honestly, like when you're hunting with one, you still hear it go off. But whatever you're shooting at typically can't tell where it came from. 
So think of it as it, it makes it hearing safe in most cases, so you're not going to have to wear ear protection. But it's, um, you know, instead of having that loud, you know, really quick boom, it's going to spread it out enough and reduce it enough that uh, it's hearing safe. You can still tell that there's a gunshot. Um, you'll hear people sometimes say, like, you know, a nail gun or, you know, choo -choo, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear it, but you just, it's not as quiet as uh, projected. Now, uh, indoors is typically even louder. So you, a lot of the movies are indoors. It's significantly louder just because of the echo effect. Um, living out here in the Dakotas where it's all prairie, if you shoot in the prairie with a high-powered rifle and you have a suppressor, you don't really hear as much because it has so much room to dissipate that sound. Yeah, that's interesting. Jeff and I, who both don't hear very well, maybe we should be investing in suppressors so that we can not go deaf and and re, and can, and retain our hearing long enough to continue teaching uh, students at, at Duke and UNC. So I think that is kind of an interesting question. I mean, if it it really does have this benefit in that, like, it's going to help you your body work better. It's not going to make you go deaf as quickly. Why do we tax this thing that like has beneficial health effects? That's a good question because there's a lot of research now just looking at, you know, hearing loss and dementia. So, you know, if you're not able to communicate because you can't hear, you know, people communicating with you, it speeds up the progression of dementia, which, you know, of course, equals quicker death. I, I think that, um, you know, if you look at other countries as an analog, um, I was in, in South Africa a couple of weeks ago. You can walk into the gun store and they're non-serialized. You buy it over the counter and you walk out with it. So most countries, most countries in Europe, um, you walk into a hardware store and you can buy them without a serial number. They're not considered a firearm. It is unique in the U.S. that they consider them a firearm. Like if you look at state law, a lot of states won't define it as a firearm. So I live in South Dakota. I had one stolen and I had a hard time convincing, you know, the state police or local sheriff to get too serious about it because it's not defined as a firearm here. And, uh, you know, sort of the wholesale value of what the person stole was negligible in their mind. So it was hard to get anyone too excited. So, I, hey, of course, I totally agree. And I would say that 800,000 to a million people a year that are buying them for hunting and for, you know, shooting would agree as well that there's health benefits. Why am I paying sort of a stent tax, really, to acquire it? So what would the people who are in favor of this say? What, like, certainly you just gave us all the... Uh anti-excise tax, but what's the other other side of the argument? Well, people would say that it's so difficult to buy a suppressor. That's what, because so here's the other thing. If you ever read about a crime with a suppressor, 99.9% .9 of the time, what you'll see in the article is that it was homemade. They didn't buy it through the process where, you know, you have to submit fingerprints, photo, wait 10 months, you know. Now, is it hard to make a homemade suppressor or is it like a 10 minute? Or people make them out of like a, you know, it'd be a felony, of course, but they make them out of flashlights, you know, like a aluminum flashlight, uh, bigger, you know, the one that holds the D-cell batteries. But so the flip side would say, hey, it's still hard to buy a suppressor, silencer, that it has uh, protected public safety because only people that are probably financially well-to-do and professionals can afford to go through this process and afford the scrutiny and the time. And if they've invested that, it kind of self-vets themselves. That's probably what they would say. Now, people who are not educated on a suppressor do think it makes it silent, and they are afraid there would be some kind of um, enhanced benefit to the shooter if it was a you know indoor shooting you know event that you couldn't tell where the shooter was, which, as I mentioned earlier, when you're indoors, it's significantly louder because of the echoes. So that kind of, you know, once someone's educated, it sort of mitigates that concern. So I guess it doesn't really, actually, two questions. The first question was kind of related to what you were talking about. Um, the of all gun crimes in our country, which there are quite a few of, 
Yeah. How often is a suppressor involved? So if you, it's very, very, very low. There's even a federal statute that if you get caught doing a crime, I think it adds like 30 years to it. So like, let's say you did a bank robbery that's 10, it adds an additional 30. Not that criminals read the law to try to figure out what not to do, but it's significantly lower the number of, um, you know, crimes committed with a silencer. And like I said, if you add the disclaimer of legally obtained suppressor, you know, not homemade, yeah. not stolen, but one that was legally obtained, it's it's very close to zero. I mean, you have to look at 10, 15, 20 years worth of data to even get, you know, double digit numbers in there. And then what kind of technical thing to add on to that? I mean, I guess it's not every gun can even accept a suppressor. You already have to start with a gun that's like made for it, which isn't most guns that people are using for most crimes. True. So um, with a handgun, typically you got to get a new barrel. And with a new barrel, it's going to have a longer extension on it with threads. So if someone did buy a barrel, they would then have to – and it's not cheap for the barrel just because it's an aftermarket accessory and it's not a high-volume accessory. So, um, you know, a Glock, I guess, is a common handgun. It's probably 120 bucks for a new drop-in barrel with threads. But then on the rifles, um, you know, people probably think about the AR platforms that have, like, the flash hider on it. That'll screw right off. The suppressor would screw right on. And if you go to a sporting goods store or look online, honestly, most uh, sporting rifles that you can buy today come threaded just because more and more people are, are hunting suppressed. It just, like I said, it's the norm in Europe. Like, there's places in Europe that if you don't use a suppressor, you're, you can you know, be a violation. You know, you get a ticket for not, you know, for, for making noise. <laughs> huh. So I have a Browning BAR 30 out six automatic rifle and it, it has, they don't call it a, it's not a suppressor. It has like a recoil diminisher or something on the front end of it. So you're telling me I could screw that off and put on a suppressor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's a, yeah, it's basically that's a muzzle brake on the end, but it's got like a tuning thing on there. Yeah. That'd be yeah, it. Screw it off. The, the threads on that Browning are not hundred percent standard. So I'd have to put a little adapter on there to hold the suppressor, but yeah, hundred percent. It'll, uh, it'll help you with recoil. So if you have kids that are hunting with you or, you know, not to be demeaning to females, but typically they're scared when they first start shooting because of that recoil. So if you can, it helps mitigate that. Um, and also obviously makes it hearing safe. So there, there's a lot of benefits. Yeah. That's very interesting. Okay. So you called it a sin tax earlier. What is the great sin that we are preventing? A uh, good question. I mean, it was started for machine guns. I guess they felt like there was too much crime with them in the thirties. So this is like the mafia. This is like, uh, yeah, so I guess that's the assumption with the tax on silencers. You know, there's like all this debate, like how did this start? Like how did silencers get in there? Some rumors are that handguns were in there and it was a trade-off. Well, let's take handguns out. Let's put silencers in. The other theory was that uh, a lot of people were concerned about poaching. It was in the middle of the depression. You're afraid if it's quiet, you go shoot your neighbor's cattle. So here's what I think based on reading all the literature is that there was no advocate at the table. And when they threw silencers in there, no one really stood up and said, hey, I've used them. They're not a public safety issue what are we doing here folks i think that you know there's no advocate there to say hey why are we doing this and it just stayed that way now you just said poaching and shooting your neighbor's cattle i would have thought poaching and shooting deer out of season <laughs> no, they move too fast yeah <laughs> much slower yeah. Yes. why why isn't there any advocate for this today i mean it seems like the republicans are quite in favor of you know changing gun legislation have they just not seen this as an issue or why 
Um, I think it's an education. So I have lobbyists in D.C., actually two of them, and they would tell me that it would take, and this is their opinion, it would take six years of a Republican Senate, a Republican House, and a Republican presidency to educate them. Because there is such a negative misconception of when you hear suppressor, you just think evil, you know, you think super quiet, you think people are dead and don't even know they got shot. You know, it's just, it's a huge hurdle to have to overcome. Um, you know, there's only been about three and a half, four million suppressors made in the history of America. So there's just not a ton of people out there using them yet. What's interesting is those silencers are typically owned by a small subset of people. So about a million and a half to two million people own three and a half to four million of them. So most people, once they buy one, they actually really like it and get another one. So a million and a half sounds like a lot, but I'm guessing relative to the total number of people who own a gun, it's like teeny. So in the U.S., how many people own a gun? You know, I know there's 350 million guns in America. Now, I don't know how many per person, like the math where that comes out to. Obviously, people that have them typically have a lot. Um, but yeah, there's essentially one gun for every American out there. Um, obviously, there's a lot of people that don't own any firearms. But yeah, the, the math, so when you hear 350 million firearms in America and you hear, you know, three, three and a half to four million silencers out there, it's not, it's not a whole lot, less than 10%. So... If this is in the Internal Revenue Code, the NFA is part of the Internal Revenue Code, is it the IRS's job to enforce this? So let's say I want to, you know, I use an oil filter or a flashlight or whatever you said you could make a felonious um, suppressor out of. Jeff's thinking about how who, to evade taxes. Who come, I can who come, like, and this, this would be a form of tax evasion. I'm getting out of this 200%. So what are the other penalties aside from having to pay this tax? And also who's in charge of enforcing that? You know, I haven't thought about the IRS. I mean, always the ATF is sort of, I guess, has been delegated to them to regulate it because it's underneath the definition of a firearm. Um, you know, we usually tell people, like, sometimes um, one will get stolen in the mail or, like, maybe it gets misdelivered, and then you're trying to convince the person that got it that, hey, you don't want to keep that. This isn't going to end well. Um, it's, you mean, you're quoted, like, a $10,000 fine because they'll call it an unregistered or, you know, you didn't pay your tax, that transfer tax. Um, and then also basically having a firearm without, you know, having filled out the paperwork to legally own or possess it. The, the ATF, you see them enforcing more when there's other crimes involved. So if someone was involved in other nefarious acts, and this was one of many, you don't see it that common by itself. Like when I've tried to get state um, to push charges against people that stole suppressors, silencers for me, I've, I've struggled. Because like I said, I think there's mandatory sentencing for it. Um, and, you know, the question is, do we really want to put this 23-year-old guy in jail for the next, you know, 30 years because he stole this from you? Of course, my answer is yes, but they, they, don't, they don't necessarily like that. And again, from the outside, can we just be a little bit more explicit what this is? It's literally just like a tube with threads. A tube with threads. It's a piece of metal that has threads. There's nothing do you, do you have one no there, Brandon? Parts. Hold it up if you got one. No, no, I wish I did. You know, we keep everything. Yeah, we keep everything locked up in our, uh, we have, a, like I said, we got 100,000 of them out there waiting for the feds to approve. Everyone's already paid their tax. We've paid the tax. We're just sitting waiting for them to get approved by the um, ATF. But yeah, essentially think of it as like an inch and a half diameter, which is equivalent to say a toilet tissue roll. And the average one is anywhere from, you know, seven to nine inches long. And then the whole thing in the middle is bigger than the bullet. So the bullet just passes through and it's carving off the gas as it goes through these chambers. And then that's what sort of wicks the heat out of it. And then also slows the gas down so that when it comes out, it's quieter. It doesn't slow the bullet down. It actually speeds the bullet up. It's almost like having a longer barrel on your rifle. So there's no negative impact on ballistics from, you know, speed. 
So does it does it expel the gas out the front or does it come out the sides? Yep, it comes out the front. Exactly. That's why like a bolt action is always typically the quietest. So if you have a you know if you were shooting a rifle that you can bolt down to shoot out, it's forcing all the gas out. If you think of like the you know AR fifteen type platform, you have gas coming out the side, so it's less efficient uh, when you use a suppressor on that. So I've I've heard of these things these suppressors that people like set up a legal entity to buy it and they don't actually buy it themselves, but rather they have the legal entity buy the suppressor. Could you tell us a little bit about that, what the benefits are, what the costs are, what's the deal with the entities? Yeah. So we're an advocate for that. So we do recommend all of our customers to set up their uh, purchase through a trust. Uh, most people call it a gun trust. So think of it as an entity that's going to own this NFA item. So it's not like a traditional trust. It's going to be a non-EIN, non-tax implication type trust that's highly specific to NFA items. The, the benefits in my mind are two. Uh, we set it up for all of our customers free. You know, we don't ever want to be accused of, you know, having practice law because in South Dakota, that's an automatic felony. So we just, uh, we get it as a template, sort of plug and play. What's your name? Um, the way it works is that I talked earlier about the title transfer. So the title transfer is transferring from my EIN, which is my, you know, federal NFA branch tax number. It's my license number. It's my EIN. That's what holds title to it. Then the title is being transferred to the trust, and then the background check is done on the people that are on the trust. So um, think of the trust as an entity that's going to own it, but the benefits are two. One, you can add additional people to it. So let's say that I transfer the silencer to your trust, and initially your name is the only one on there. They vetted you. You can add anyone that's 18 or over to this trust. Then they can be in possession of the suppressor when you're not there. So it kind of creates a joint ownership. And then the third, the second are, benefit. Are the extra two hundred dollars, or just for yeah, free? No, good question. Yeah, no two hundred dollars because think of the entity owns it, and the ATF feels like they have no longer have standing after it's been transferred, so they're out of it. So there's no background check. There's no paperwork has to be resubmitted to the ATF. It's um, be the same as if your LLC owned it, and it would just transfer to that. You could do an LLC, but we're usually against that because then it has tax implications. If you start adding people to your LLC. Uh, if you start adding employees, things like that, you're going to have to, you're just going to mess up your tax. And this really, the benefit is joint ownership and then also legacy. So you can identify in your trust from a beneficiary perspective, who's going to get the suppressor when you pass away. Because again, remember I said the paperwork is like very arduous to transfer from one person to another. It's the same way once you die to transfer it to, if you transfer it to someone when you die, uh, it's free. The feds don't charge 200 bucks. But if you have it in a trust, it's already taken care of. The entity still owns it, but the beneficiary has already been identified. So there's no background check for them. There's no $200. They just automatically inherit it. That's kind of amazing. So so these gun trusts, you can have not just um, obviously a suppressor, but you can own, I guess, certain types of guns or can you put any type of gun in a gun trust? You know, we have to send a copy to the ATF, so I'm always hesitant for people to put other uh, firearms in there because then you're revealing serial numbers. Um, most people don't realize, but, um, you know, ATF doesn't keep up with serialized. Like, they don't know where. So silencers are in a registry, a gun registry. But a regular firearm, if you buy a firearm and it's used in a crime later, the ATF, the only way they could trace the ownership is to go back to the manufacturer 
ask the manufacturer which wholesaler distributor they sold it to, then ask the wholesaler distributor which dealer they sold it to, and then call the dealer and say who actually bought that item. So there's no national database of serial numbers as to where stuff is. So typically people will just put short barrel rifles in there, people put machine guns in there, and they'll put silencers. But you know, 95% of NFA branch stuff is, is all silencers. So you've said short barrel rifle. What's it? Can you tell us what a short barrel rifle is? Uh, shorter than 16 inches. So if you have like an AR uh, type um, setup, like an AR-15, typically some of them will be 16 inches with a flash hider. So if you took the flash hider off, it'll be shorter than 16 inches. So they define that as a short barrel rifle. It's defined underneath the same NFA branch. The theory was it would be easier to conceal a rifle uh, that has like a stock on it and it could cause potentially more damage. So they make people register them. It's more of a tactical setup. It's it's never been that attractive to me. I'm more on the hunting side, but it is regulated. It's um, I don't honestly see any benefit from it myself, but some people like, think of it as if you had a stock with a pistol on it, that would be a short barrel rifle. Anything 16 inches or if it's less than 16 inch barrel on it, then it's got to be registered as a short barrel rifle if it's got a stock. So the stock is the defining characteristic. The stock makes it a rifle. The short barrel makes it a short barrel. That's short barrel rifle. I was about, I was about to ask, what, why not a pistol, which also has quite a short barrel, uh, which is also quite concealable, but they just decide the stock makes it more dangerous, I guess. Yes, something. yes, yes. It doesn't make any sense to me. But again, short barrel rifles don't make sense to me either because they're super loud too. So those are something that people do like to suppress because that's sure that rifle barrel is, and that's a whole lot more powder coming out of a rifle bullet than you know with a handgun. Well, and of course, if your objective was to conceal it, but then you put a nine-inch uh, silencer on the end, you, it's so long, it's not short anymore. No, no, totally. No, totally. And you know what's interesting is if you uh, permanently affix, so if you welded a silencer onto a short barrel rifle and they consider the silencer to be part of the barrel length as long as you're 16 inches or over, then it's not considered a short barrel rifle. But you still have to register the um, the actual silencer. So you got to pay the $200 tax on that. So I know some... You know, for example, there are special taxes on ammunition and firearms, and those are meant to like preserve wildlife or something like that. Is the are the proceeds from this particular excise tax dedicated to any particular cause, or just goes into the like the general coffers? Yes, good question. So I think ammo is ten percent. It goes to Pittman Robertson, uh, which is conservation. And I think firearms are eleven percent. If you look at ammo and firearms, it makes up about eighty-five percent of what goes into the Pittman Robertson, which is for conservation. What's cool about that is a lot of states will match those dollars. So if millions come to the state, then the state will actually match it. So it's a huge deal for conservation. So the two hundred dollar tax stamp goes directly to the treasury. Um, you know, my, my lobbyists and I are looking at presenting a bill where we would like to see that money go to conservation because now it's just earmarked to kind of go to the general treasury. We would like to see it go to something that benefits, you know, firearms, enthusiasts, shooters, hunters, and sort of give back just from a legacy perspective as well. A completely different question. Still about silencers though. So I talked about what if we got rid of this excise tax, you said for your business, that would be good. People would probably buy more of them. What do you think would happen to the price? Do you think that if we had no excise tax, I mean, I guess a good question would be how, what is the price in Europe of one of these things? Is it much less? It is, but remember there, they see it as disposable because they can buy it over the counter. Whereas in the U.S., they think of it more as a lifetime purchase. So like in South Africa and Europe, it's typically aluminum. If it quits working, you just throw it out and buy another one. They're probably, you know, um, they're still fairly expensive. Like when I saw one in South Africa, it was about 500 bucks. So for all aluminum, that seemed high. 
Um, what would it do to the price? I think that that's a good question. I think volume would go up. I think if people um, that tax would increase sales, volume would go up, and that you would see as volume goes up, competition goes up. As competition goes up, I think you'll see price drop. Because right now it's the process too. I mean, I'm I can't recognize the revenue until I actually ship the product. So I'm sitting on. $100 million worth of revenue here that my bank wants me to have access to instantly. And so does, you know, the IRS so I can pay taxes on it. But I can't report this as revenue until I ship that silencer out the door. So, um, I say report that. Tell, tell us a little bit more. Are you talking about for financial accounting purposes? What? Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, just the gap, um, you know, so like if I sell you a, you know, $1,200 silencer, so let's say a $1,000 silencer and then $200 tax, I just brought 1200 bucks into my, well, I send the 200 back directly to the ATF, but the $1,000, I can't recognize that as earned revenue until I actually, until the customer actually has the product. So I have to follow the tracking information for when the customer actually gets it before I can recognize that revenue. So I'm sitting on, you know, about $100 million worth of revenue I've generated that it's not been taxed yet because I can't recognize it until I actually deliver the final product. So when I first started this business, I loved it. I mean, it's great. I'm delaying taxes by a year. But you go to the bank and say, hey, I need an operation credit. I want a $20 million uh, credit so I can make more silencers because demand is up. He's like, well, no way. Why would I lend you money? You're not even able to bring it. It takes you a year before you can even recognize it. So it creates a it creates an ugly balance sheet to look and see that, you know, and also every year you're getting, you're getting stronger in your business, so you're going to have more, you know, your fixed operating expenses are going up, so your operating expenses aren't even in the same category with what you earned that revenue in a year previous. So it's a, it's a quagmire. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, a, long, a, lot of, a lot of accruals there to think about if you're an accounting guru. So what, what fraction of the market does Silencer Central have? the legal silencer market? You know, 15 to 20% of the market. I mean, it's, it's fortunate that we're silencer central's, um, you know, licensed in all 42 states where these are legal. So that helps because we were, you know, we can basically sell to anyone that's in a state where they're legal, but probably the biggest uh, sellers are going to be like a local gun store. You know, somebody walks into a store and just buys one from who they already know. And you are the, you said you are the largest silencer seller. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Just, you know, we created an interesting market where we actually ship the silencers to the customer's front door. And that's a completely different story, but there's so much paperwork we have to do to make that happen as far as alerting your sheriff it's coming. Oh, it, does, it does not have to go to an FFL. No, because we are an FFL. So in North Carolina, we would ship it directly to your front door because FBI did a background check on you before they sent the approval to me. And then I had you fill out the same 4473 you would fill out when you buy a gun. And then I sent it certified mail to your sheriff. So he or she has a copy of it in front of them before I mail it to you. All right. Well, Brandon, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on today's show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. All right. My name is Scott Dyering. I'm professor of accounting at Duke University, and I'm joined as always by Jeff Hoops, professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina. And our guest today has been Brandon Maddox, CEO of Silencer Central. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.